0: Thank you, Becky. Good morning, Hallows Church. Uh, my name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And one of the things, one of the things that I uh, seem to do each and every week as I get up here is I, I thank you for joining us, right? I thank you for coming. And the, the reason I do that is because, well, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm grateful. I'm genuinely happy to see each and every one of you, each and every time that we come together in this place to participate together in this way. But one thing I want to do a bit differently today is not only to thank you because of the fact that you're here, I'd like to ask you to consider a question. I'd like to ask you to consider the reason, the reason why you're here. Why are you here today? Why do, why do we come to this place on Sunday morning? Why do we come here? Why do we do this? Many people have many different answers to those sorts of questions. Many come to church with very humble and receptive hearts, hoping to draw near to God. But many others walk into church each week with hearts that are are very far from him in one way or another. Some people go to church each week because they believe they're supposed to go to church each week. And there's a certain sense of duty and obligation. And because of that, some go to church because they feel guilty if they, if they don't. Some go to church so that others might view them in a certain way or so that they might be able to view themselves in a certain way. Some go to church because they think it might be good for their kids or it might be good for their, for their spouse. But I hope you're here today not for any of those reasons. I hope the reason you've come today is not because you have to or be, because you're supposed to, but, but because at some level you want to and, and you need to. I hope at some level there's a certain sense of longing within you to experience and to encounter your creator and to delight and enjoy him as you do. I hope the reason you're here today is because you know and you believe that something unique happens uh, in the the gathering of God's people, something special that nothing else in this world can offer, something supernatural even that, that renews our minds refreshes our hearts and recalibrates our perspectives as we ready ourselves for uh, yet another Monday morning. I hope you're, I hope the reason you're here today, friends, is to worship. You've surely heard us say it here at the Hallows Church. We self-identify as a, a worshiping community, a worshiping people. We worship. That's who we are. That's, that's what we do. But what is that? What is worship? the word worship actually comes from the old english word uh, worship and it has to do with ascribing worth to something it has to do with ascribing worth or attributing value to something or to someone and so really to worship means to ascribe ultimate worth to that which you consider most valuable and most prized above everything else and it involves centering your life on that something or on that someone accordingly. That's, that's one way to think about worship. And Paul, in this passage, I think, is going to uh, show us something about how Christian worship works, and it's a beautiful thing to behold and to learn from, and we'll get there in a moment. But first, we need to be clear on a couple of things uh, as we talk about worship. Do you know that most worship, from a, from a biblical perspective, has nothing at all to do with God? Do you know that worship is something that every person on this planet is engaging in right now, whether they know it or not, whether they uh, believe in God or not, or whether they go to church or not? You may have heard of the American writer named David Foster Wallace. He rose to the top of his profession. He was a highly acclaimed postmodern thinker and writer. His style of storytelling pushed many boundaries from a literary perspective, and he won many awards because of it. In 2005, Wallace gave a commencement speech to the graduating class of Kenyon College in Ohio. And it's a speech that has, since he gave it, received quite a lot of attention. And in this speech at this liberal arts college, interestingly enough, David Foster Wallace, he he started talking about about worship. Listen to what he said to that graduating class. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, he says. And pretty much anything you worship, he says, will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in your life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before your loved ones finally grieve you. Worship power, he says, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb yourself to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen by others as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the verge of being found out. Now, those are some very interesting insights, right? Let me add a few more to the list here that I'm kind of borrowing from uh, the work of Timothy Keller. Worship your spouse or your partner, and you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. Worship your children, and you will try to live your life through them until they resent you or have no self of their own. Worship pleasure and self-gratification, and you will find yourself addicted to something or to someone. Worship relationships and approval, and you will be controlled by what others think of you. Worship a cause or a movement, and you will divide the world into good and bad, and you will demonize your opponents. And ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies, because without them, you will have no purpose, Keller says. Now, Foster Wallace continued in that commencement speech in this way. He said, but he said, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful in themselves. He said, it's what's most insidious about them is that they're unconscious. They are default settings for all of us, he says. They're the kind of worship that just gradually, uh, that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Now not too long after giving this speech David Foster Wallace he he took his own life. He he hung himself in his home in California and this non-religious par- uh, man's parting words are are pretty piercing and and pretty accurate too. You're worshiping something everybody is and whatever that something is given enough time it will It will begin to control you. It will begin to call the shots in your life. Here's a a smart man, a very thoughtful man, a very deep thinker, considering the human condition we find ourselves in and arriving at a conclusion about this world and about the human heart and about his own heart that's entirely consistent with what the Bible has to say on these things too. In many ways, the Bible describes sin as misplaced worship The very essence of sin, the Bible tells us, is is false worship. It's counterfeit worship. Listen to what Romans chapter 1 verse 25 says. That verse there, it tells us uh, that the default mode of the fallen human heart is is to exchange the truth about God for a lie and to worship and serve the creation. To worship and serve what has been created, right? People, possessions, power, intellect... Instead of worshiping and serving the creator of it all, who is the only one worthy of worship. We were designed to worship God, but sin has distorted everything. And as a result, we make the objects of our worship, all of, all of these things other than God. Even though people might never call the things they're doing worship, you can be absolutely sure that everybody's doing it. Everybody's looking to to something. Everybody's looking to someone without exception. Everybody is ascribing ultimate value and worth to something or to someone around them. We all worship. This is why Fyodor Dostoevsky would say that man, so long as he is free, has no more constant and agonizing anxiety than to find someone or something To worship, he says. And the Bible says that whatever that something or someone is, whatever it is that you worship apart from Jesus will eventually ensnare you. It will eventually control you. And quite often, you won't even realize that it's happening. Friends, we're worshipers, all of us. That's uh, what we are. It's what we do. We worship our way into sin and bondage in all of these uh, different areas of our lives if we're not careful. And the truth is... We need to worship our way out of these things, too, continually, week after week after week. That's one of the things we get after right here, again and again, exposing that fundamental lie, that very seductive lie at times, that that something in this world, something uh, created, some created thing can make our lives right and can make our hearts right. And so when we come into this place, we come to expose that lie, we come... Uh, to take back the truth in a sense, again and again to uh, reclaim the truth about God and to relocate our affections from these various uh, counterfeits that are vying for our attention and, and vying for our allegiance and resetting our focus squarely on our God. We worship our way into sin and we, and we need to worship our way out too. And the Apostle Paul is going to show us the way here. He's going, to, he's going to model this for us in a sense. Paul is going to show us something about true worship this morning uh, in this passage that I hope will be instructive for us. And one of, the, one of the things he's going to show us is that true worship, true worship begins with, with the truth. True worship begins as the truth about God, the truth about his character, about his goodness, about his gospel, is, is heard and is, is taken in. And as we step into this place today, as we step into this passage today, too, there's a lot of truth here to, to take in and to, and to think through. It's a remarkable passage. We could spend months on this passage, to be honest, but, but instead today we're going to do a bit of a, a flyover and we're going we're gonna to talk about what we see Paul doing here and how it applies to us uh, here today as we consider what it means to worship. And one thing that's pretty hard to miss here is how Paul is, Paul is reveling in God's goodness and in God's grace as he, as he writes these words. Over the years, translators have broken this passage down into multiple verses and sentences, all in an effort to make it more manageable, to make it more uh, understandable for us. But that's not how this passage was originally recorded. Originally, this was a single and continuous sentence. It was a single and continuous outburst of adoration by the Apostle Paul. And various commentators over the years have searched for uh, metaphors vivid enough to capture what, uh, what he's doing here. A guy by the name of John McKay says that Paul's adoration in this passage is comparable to the opening overture of an opera intended to set the tone and to set the stage for everything that would follow. Armitage Robinson says that this opening passage by Paul is like the preliminary flight of a young eagle rising and circling around as if enjoying for a time his boundless freedom before deciding which direction he might take. William Hendrickson compares these opening words by Paul with a snowball rolling down a hill picking up volume and momentum as it goes. And there's a very interesting structure to this text as well that shows us uh, something very important I think. If Christian worship is our if Christian worship is our right response, our proper response to who God is and to and to what he's done, which I believe it is, then Paul is giving us much to consider here in this passage. We actually see the entire trinity at work in this passage. You see the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is a a triune God, one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. And what we see here is all three members of the trinity working together and acting together in the work of uh, salvation with God uh, God the Father uh, purposing our redemption God the Son securing our redemption and with God the Holy Spirit applying it to our hearts and to our lives in the here and now. And as we consider this passage in this way, I'd like to explore three points from it. The source of our worship, the center of our worship, and the experience of our worship. First, the source of our worship. One of the most striking things that you see here in this passage, it's um, it's hard to miss, really, is that, is that when it comes to you and I, when it comes to you and I being Christians and being together in this way, it has nothing at all to do with us, and it has, has everything at all to do with Him. This passage, in fact, has very little to say about you and I other than perhaps the problem that we have created and the gifts of grace that we have received anyways. The focus here in these opening verses is not on us at all. It's on the goodness and the grace, the initiating grace, in fact, extended to us in the gospel by God the Father. He is the source of our faith, He is the source of our hope, and He is the source of our worship. What we see here, in fact, is that it's God the Father who is the subject of almost every main verb in these opening verses. Listen to these verbs, these actions here which um, tell us something about the things that God the Father has done and and things that God the Father continues uh, to do for you and I as Christians in the gospel. And what we see is that it's the Father who has blessed us in verse three. It is the Father who has chosen us in verse four. It is the Father who has predestined us for adoption as his children, verse five. It is the Father who freely bestows on us his grace, verse 6. Literally, that, that means what it says there is he graced us with his grace. It is the Father who lavishes his grace upon us, verse 8. It is the Father who makes himself and his plan known to us, verse 9. And each and every one of those actions finds its origin and finds its intent in God our Father. And then as you turn from those verbs to the objects of those verbs, in other words, why he, why he blessed us, why he chose us, why he adopted us, Paul says it's because of God's love in verse 4, and God's grace in verse 6, and God's plan in verse 10, God's will in verses 5, 9, and 11, and God's purpose also in verses 5, 9, and 11. The initiating grace of God the Father is bubbling up and spilling out of this passage as the very basis and the very source of our hope and our worship. Paul is taking an inventory here of the excellencies of God the Father. And and what do we see happen as he does? He starts praising God. He starts praising the Father in verse 6. He says, To the praise of his glorious grace. Paul lays out truth for us here about God the Father, right? Who, who he is, what he's done. And as, he, as Paul himself takes it in, as he, as he thinks uh, through those truths, those truths move from his head into his heart. And Paul breaks out into worship. He begins praising his God. And that's truth leading to worship. That's truth eliciting a response, igniting a response really of, of praise and worship within the Apostle Paul. How do those truths hit you this morning? Do they ignite any sort of response within you and your own heart today? They should because, because you see what Paul is saying here, right? Paul, Paul in these verses, he could not be insisting any more forcefully in this passage that our becoming members of God's family, being chosen, being loved, being adopted is not due to chance nor to choice, but to God's own sovereign will and good pleasure, it says in verse 5. Paul says that is the decisive reason why you and I are Christians. And so friends, you did not become a Christian because you figured things out on your own and you arrived at the truth. Rather, this passage would say that you're a Christian because God planned and purposed that you would be a Christian from before this world and everything in it was created, it says in verse 4. And if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, I want to suggest to you that you're not, you're not here by accident. I want to suggest to you that perhaps the reason you're sitting here today is because he's, he's wooing you, he's uh, pursuing you, he's drawing you in because he, because he loves you in, in spite of you. You see, the gospel is not about you or what you've done. It's all about who he is and what he's done. And he's a good and and gracious father. And in verse 10, Paul says he's a father with a plan. Paul starts talking about God's plan there, God's plan for the fullness of time in verse 10 that Paul says the father has made known to us and Paul, he leaves no room for confusion here that this plan, God's plan for humanity and for the world, while it, while it starts with the Father's initiating uh, grace, from there it moves towards and centers squarely on the person and the work of, of Jesus. And so whereas the source of our worship is the initiating grace of, of God the Father, the center of our worship is in every way God the Son... In fact, Jesus is mentioned in this passage either by name or title or pronoun no fewer than 15 times. So there can be no mistake as we talk about our worship and the object of it that it all truly centers on Jesus and what he did for us. Paul is again laying out truth here. He's taking an inventory of the excellencies of of who Jesus is and, and what he's done and the real thrust of it all, the core of it all, you find in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 there. Verse 7 says that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And that right there, verse 7, that's a powerful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Distilled down to a very concise form, a very compelling form. That's the core and the heart of the gospel, right? God, come into human history as the man, Christ Jesus, why? To redeem and to forgive sinners like you and I, how? By the shedding of his own blood, not because of our merit, but, but according to the riches of his grace, and that Greek word in, in verse 7 translated as redemption, that's an interesting one and it tells us something important about ourselves and about our condition. That word was most often used to refer to the act of, of paying a ransom in order to purchase someone, to liberate someone who was being held captive. And perhaps the most famous example of this back then was when a young Julius Caesar was kidnapped by a, a band of pirates. And that band of pirates, uh, they demanded that his family redeem him and purchase him back if they ever wanted to see him alive again. And his family, they did pay the ransom, a very large sum. They secured uh, Julius Caesar's freedom, but then they proceeded to capture and to crucify those pirates who had done it. But it's interesting, isn't it, the the way that Paul uses this language of of slavery and ransoms. He uses language that uh, suggests that you and I and every person on this planet is captive and enslaved apart from Jesus and what he did. We see language, similar language, used throughout the Bible, in fact, in Jesus' first sermon recorded in the Bible in Luke chapter four, he stepped up, he stood up in, in his hometown synagogue, and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, from, from chapter sixty-one of that book. And basically what he said, he said, I'm I'm the one who God promised would come to make everything right. He said, i I'm the one who's come to open the eyes of the blind and to set the captives free. And it may not have been clear at the time what he was talking about, but it's clear now that Jesus was talking about spiritual blindness and spiritual captivity. Jesus there and and Paul here is saying that nothing short of a ransom would be needed to free us from ourselves and from, from our misplaced worship, from our counterfeit worship, and to restore us in right relationship with our Creator so that we might begin to worship rightly the one we were designed to worship in the first place. And Paul says in verse 7 and in all of his writings, really, that the payment, the payment has been made by the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins so that you and I might have a future, so that you and I might have a hope and, and an inheritance, it says in verse 11. Matthew and Mark, they would say something quite similar, that payment has been made in full, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Mark would tell us that Jesus came not, to, not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You'll find the gospel explained in different ways by different people in different settings, but uh, verse 7 of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians really uh, gets after the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel, the very center of our worship, must always and, and will always center squarely on the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. These are life changing gospel truths that we recount and rehearse regularly and repeatedly in our hearts and in our lives and in this place. And we see these truths again moving paul and affecting paul remember he laid out truth about god the father incredible truths and then he burst out into praise and worship in verse 6 now now this time he's talking about god the son laying out marvelous truths and what does paul do next he responds he responds to that truth it leads him to begin praising god again to the praise of his glory he says in verse 12 Paul is celebrating and worshiping Jesus as a response to who he is and to what he's done. The truth about God, again, seems to be the starting point, the entry point. It seems to uh, stir something up within Paul. It seems to be eliciting a response and causing something to happen within Paul that leads leads him to begin praising and celebrating and worshiping God. And that's what I'd like to talk about as we turn a corner here. That is, what's going on within Paul as he considers these truths? And what's going on within us as we we do the same? We talked about the source of our worship. We talked about the center of our worship. Now let's talk for a bit about the experience of our worship. In the final couple of verses of this passage, 13 and 14, we're reminded of the of the present tense reality, the present tense dynamic of being a Christian and of of being the church together. You see, the gospel is not merely about something that happened in the past and it's not merely about something that's going to happen in the future. It's also about something that's happening right now here in the present. When you put your trust and your faith in Jesus and the redemption uh, he secured for you at the cross, God the Holy Spirit, he moves in and he takes up uh, residence within you. That's why in verse 13 it says, when you believed in Jesus, when you heard and believed, you were sealed with the, the promised Holy Spirit. And that word sealed in the Greek, to be sealed by the Spirit in verse 13, it's a word that in that day was was used um, to refer to a, a mark of ownership or a mark of, of authenticity. You see, a seal was often affixed to a document, to... guarantee its genuineness. A seal was often attached to items that were in transit in order to indicate uh, who owned them as they made their way to their final destination. Animals were often branded with a seal by their owners in order to indicate to whom they belonged. And so by giving us the Holy Spirit, God seals and stamps you and I as his own possession he puts his spirit within his people in order to mark us as his own. Verse 14 also says that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that God will our guarantee that God will bring his people as his possession safely to our uh, final destination, our final inheritance. This word guarantee, it comes from a word used back then that by traders and merchants to refer to the uh, first installment or the the down payment on something that was being purchased that would be then later acquired. But in this case, the Holy Spirit is not something separate from what God uh, guarantees to us later. He's actually the first portion of it, the first portion of, of God's very presence dwelling within us in the here and now. And so in giving us the Holy Spirit, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it. He's giving us himself. And did you know that according to the Bible, it's the same Holy Spirit dwelling uh, within you who is ultimately responsible, not only for you uh, becoming a Christian, but for you growing as a Christian and, and even worshiping as a Christian. Listen to what it's, uh, this same apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter two, verse 12. He says, he says, "Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God, we also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit." explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. And so what this is saying, what this, what this means is that when you and I open our Bibles, when you and I uh, step into this space each week, it is the Holy Spirit who who mediates our understanding of the spiritual truths that we hear. And it's the Holy Spirit who wants to, who wants to bring those truths alive in our hearts if we'll let him. It's the Holy Spirit in the present tense who stirs up the, the experience of worship within us. And the experience of our worship given to us by and through the Holy Spirit it includes uh, three components, I think. First, worship. Worship involves thinking. It requires thinking, in fact. When we step in here and open our Bibles, when we sing the lyrics of, of songs, we're, uh, we're engaging our minds, right? We listen, we, we take in, we consider, we, we think. Worship requires thinking about the truth. It, it launches out of truth, doesn't it? it? It ignites and it explodes off of truth. But engaging our minds and engaging our uh, intellect alone, apart from something more, is not worship. We are going after substance here as a church. Uh, we explore deep theological content as we, as we come together in this way. But, but merely thinking about theological, theological concepts and processing them intellectually, that's not worship either. We do come with our minds. We come in thinking. We take in truth, just like Paul does uh, here in this passage. But I hope when we do this each Sunday, I hope that I hope that you expect too to to feel something, to experience something, because worship involves feelings and emotions too, friends. Where our our feelings are not quickened, where our Feelings for God are not quickened, where our affections for God are not elevated and, and animated, then there is no genuine worship taking place. Worship is a quickening of our feelings for God. And so, so where feelings for God are dead, so is worship. Worship is vain, it's empty, it's, it's nothing where the heart goes unmoved. True worship sweeps us up, it takes us in, it's a bubbling up of uh, emotions, it's an experience. It's an affair of the heart more than anything else. Friends, worship is truth set ablaze by the Holy Spirit. Truth catching fire in our hearts, that's what worship is. There's an intellectual side to all of this. In fact, there has to be. But for true worship to come alive, there's an emotional component too. There's there's an experiential component. This is why Richard Foster would say this. He would say, uh, to worship is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of the gathered community. Now, you may say, hold on, what are these feelings? What is this experience? And just so you don't think I'm making all this up, let me give you just a small sampling of the rich emotional responses found in worship, found in the world's richest book of worship, which is the book of Psalms. There we see worship includes emotions and experiences of many types. There we see worship, for example, flowing out of feelings of brokenness and contrition and grief over sin. Psalm 51, verse 17, says that the sacrifice pleasing to God is a a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. Psalm 38, verse 18, says, So I confess my iniquity. I am anxious because of my sin. We also see worship flowing out of feelings of longing and, and desire. Psalm 42, verse 1, As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? Psalm 73, verse 25, when do, Who do I have in heaven but you? And I, I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. We also see worship flowing out of feelings of reverence and awe before the holiness and the magnitude of God. Psalm 5 verse 7 says this, But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Psalm 33 verse 8, Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the the world stand in awe of him. We also see worship flowing out of feelings of gratitude and and thanksgiving. Psalm 100 verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Psalm 95 verse 1, come. Let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. We've got contrition, sorrow, longing, desire, awe, gratitude, joy, hope. Hope. These are examples of some of the feelings that may be, may, uh, may be stirred up within you uh, by the Holy Spirit as we humbly draw near to God in genuine worship. And when these feelings are quickened, I hope that you find yourself being swept up. I hope, I hope you allow yourself to be swept up by them. Worship is an affair of the heart and it, invo- it involves all of us, our, our whole being, mind, will, feelings emotions. This is perhaps why William Temple would say this. He would say, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration. Finally, worship involves not only thinking and feeling, but it also involves doing. Throughout biblical history, worship has always involved action. In fact, the main word for worship in the Hebrew language means to to bow down. Worship has always involved doing, doing things like bowing and kneeling, right? Lifting, Lifting your hands, lifting your voices, praying, singing, celebrating, reciting scripture, partaking in the Lord's Supper, And God tells his people, he says, do all of these things. He says, worship me in all of these ways. And some people have trouble with this. Some people ask the question, why is God always telling his people in the Bible to to praise him and to worship him? Doesn't that seem a bit egocentric? But at some level, perhaps God tells us to do these things for our own good and for, for our own joy. C.S. Lewis once said, we delight to praise and celebrate what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses our enjoyment, it also completes our enjoyment. It is the consummation of our enjoyment. And this is why some of us raise our voices and raise our hands as we worship uh, our Lord together in this setting each week because our experience and our delight in that moment is incomplete until it is expressed in that fashion. Worship involves thinking and feeling, but it also involves doing things at times, doing, doing things that enhance the moment, that, that complete the, the experience. If you're at a Seahawks game and Russell Wilson throws a game-winning touchdown pass uh, late in the fourth quarter, your enjoyment Your enjoyment of that moment is incomplete if you stand there with your hands in your pocket that whole time. The enjoyment of that moment becomes complete only as you raise your hands and clap your hands and raise your voice and and celebrate what you just experienced. And if we celebrate human accomplishments in that sort of way, how much more should we express our, our gratitude, our celebration of our God? And how much more might... That enhance and complete our enjoyment of what we experience in this place each week. So let me encourage you today, please don't ever be shy about lifting your voices, lifting your hands in worship, or kneeling, or or even dancing if the Spirit so moves you. We're among friends here. This is a place where you are encouraged to, to worship our God expressively and without reservation. At times, I think the greatest hindrance to us allowing ourselves to be uh, swept up in worship is that we're too self-aware. We're too self-conscious when what we need more than anything in those moments is to let go and to be self-forgetful and not to make it about us, but to, to make it all about him. I believe we need this. We need the experience of corporate worship to keep us going, to renew us, to uh, refresh us, and to recalibrate our hearts each week. And my hope and prayer every week is that new and powerful emotions for God are awakened and, and reawakened in our hearts week after week as we commit ourselves, as we, as we recommit ourselves to, to reclaiming the truth, to celebrating God, to being satisfied in Him through our worship. Several years back, the world watched on as three gray whales found themselves icebound in the Beaufort Sea near Point Barrow in Alaska. The whales, they found themselves lost and and stuck under a six-inch layer of ice that extended for many, many miles before reaching the open sea. And these three whales, they were trapped under this thick layer of ice, and the only way they were able to survive was because there was, there was one hole in the ice where those whales could come up for air. And so they stayed put, they stayed near that one hole because it was the only way they could survive. Now, once some locals discovered those three lost whales at that ice hole, a rescue effort began. At first, rescuers used chainsaws to cut a string of breathing holes in the ice that were spaced out every 20 or 30 yards kind of leading out to the to the dire- in the direction of the open sea you see the rescuers hope that they might coax the whales to open waters and to their own freedom one breathing hole at a time and word was spreading about what was going on and it it didn't take long before others got involved in this effort too Helicopters came in and they were dropping these massive steel hammers onto the, the surface of the ice as they continued to create these, these, this string of breathing holes leading out to the open sea. And for eight days, rescuers led the whales from one hole to the next, mile, mile after mile. And the whales had become pretty battered and bloodied by this time because of the, the jagged ice along the edges of these, of these air holes and unfortunately, along the way, one of these three whales disappeared and was presumably uh, dead. But nevertheless, rescuers were able to coax the other two whales, one breathing hole at a time, all the, way to, all the way to open waters and all the way to their freedom. And friends, in an interesting way, our corporate worship in this place from One Sunday to the next is perhaps something like a string of breathing holes that the Lord provides for us. As we lose our way, as we get stuck, as we get battered and bruised in a world that's uh, frozen over and at times uh, suffocating, we come up for air, don't we, in this place and we breathe deeply of God's sustaining grace. We come up for air one Sunday at a time to breathe deeply of God's gospel to experience him, to be renewed and refreshed by him again and again until that day when the Lord shatters forever what we can't break through on our own and until he makes a final way for us to safety and to the open waters of eternity. Let's pray.